You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Today we'll be discussing the role of the Ottoman ulama in the Second Constitutional Revolution with Yakub Ahmet, a PhD candidate at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Yakub, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. So Yakub, the first question to ask is what is the Second Constitutional Revolution and whether you can contextualise this period and the main players uh, and perhaps uh, introduce this idea of the ulama and who they are. First thing I'll say is who are the ulama, right? Um, we will look at them as the traditional religious class, people who are educated in the, the madrasa or ilmiya setup, who generally learn qu- the Quran and hadith studies, and then go on to uh, positions of being judges, imams, uh, teachers. You can break from that. Um, there, there are ways where people will become members of the ulama where they were not st- studying in those structures. But just for conformity and for the sake of this discussion, we'll go with people that were actually part of the uh, religious educated class and who were um, part of the madrasa system. And so what's happened is in the late period, so we have what we call the Hamidian period, right, which is uh, during the reign of Sultan Abdul Hamid II. And it's known as this period of uh, outward religiosity, especially in regards to Islam. And then we have a constitutional revolution. So what that means is that in in 1878, between 76 and 78, we have a constitution in the Ottoman Empire. And then Sultan Abdul Hamid decides that he's going to do away with the parliament and the outwardly sort of uh, depiction of the constitution. And he doesn't want anything of that nature in terms of his political structure and setup. And then it takes until 1908 for a return of some sort of constitutional governance. And the narratives generally present a, a young Turk narrative, which were you know, young, educated people either outside the empire or within the empire, um, who some of them part of the military class who were upset with the way that the, the political structure was and they wanted to change that. And so you have this movement from the Balkan provinces, mainly Macedonia, that comes towards Istanbul and uh, subjugates the sultan and then asks for the constitution to be restored. Um, and so it is. And what I'm arguing is that is that the ulama were part of this narrative, which is generally not presented um, in the narratives of regards to the constitutional uh, revolution. Um, what's generally presented is they were bystanders to a storm. They just got swept up within this. Um, they came along for the ride, and then they tried to survive within it. But actually, if we look closer on hand, we see that actually they were an inherent part of that. Um, there, there's a lot of things about the revolution we don't know. I mean, there's the role of women within the revolution, for example. We see enough information where women were part of the revolutionary activities. Mm. Um, and But still, the man of the musket is more interesting than the man of the pen. So mm. that's how the revolution has been presented um, in regards to this period. When we talk about the 1908 revolution, one of the first things that come to mind is this idea of the Young Turk, followed on by the emergence of the CUP. Mm-hmm. Would you like to mention anything in terms of what their role was? So the narrative is like, you know, so the term Young Turk, I mean, is an umbrella term, right, of all the different types of people who are probably 
raised during the Hamidian period and are disenfranchised by the, the style of politics that's been implemented by the Hamidian regime. And the CPU, which was which they were known at before and then became the CUP later on, which is the Committee of Union and Progress, are a particular group of people within the Young Turk umbrella who uh, managed to uh, get some sort of a foothold in the political structure after the revolution and become the prominent drivers of that revolutionary change. Um, so the narrative is generally presented from their perspective, and that's one of the problems we have with Ottoman studies, which is initially studies are sultanic-centered. So the sultan is a reflection of the empire as a whole, and then the CUP uh, become a reflection of, that, of their period, which means that generally the, the empire is reflected from the position of central authority. And other actors who don't fit into those paradigms are generally neglected. Now, that's changing very slowly, but it is changing. The 1908 uh, revolution is seen through the eyes of the Young Turks, and most narratives talk about uh, the Young Turks and the CUP. But you also want to introduce the role of the ulama. You've mentioned that the ulama was somewhat thrusted into this. Now, was this a forcible uh, movement of the ulama into the, the sphere of the 1908 revolution, or was or were they reticent, or, or how do you see it as? Yeah, actually, that's an excellent question. I mean... One of the things that I, I notice, and I'll just give you a backdrop um, of some sort of revolutionary act activity that was happening in other parts of the world. So, I mean, Nader Sohrabi talks about these global waves of constitutional movements and revolutions that happen. And we have revolutionary activity in Iran. We have constitutional revolutionary activity in Russia in 1905. And so what you see is that ulama are a central part of those narratives. Um Okay, in the Russian case, they're a minority, but what we do see is that there is ulama activity involved in the Russian constitutional revolutionary movements. What we see definitely in the Iranian case is this uh, strong ulama narrative within the constitutional revolution that took place in Iran, mm -hmm. um, of which oppositional activity was being embarked from Ottoman Iraq, right? So we have these two revolutions in which the ulama are part of the narrative. Mm come 1908 in the Ottoman Empire, it doesn't seem to reflect that in the secondary literature, which is strange because they are part of the structure and they are just as annoyed with the Hamidian regime as anyone else. So we see oppositional activity across the empire, not just um, you know outside in, the, in, in Europe, but we see oppositional activity or members of the ulama being arrested in Damascus. Mm. Uh, members of the ulama being internally um, exiled to the uh, peripheral areas of the Ottoman Empire. We see oppositional activity in Egypt. So, um, and then when we look at the, the revolution itself on the ground um, in 1908 in the Macedonian provinces, mm -hmm. with the strong religious rhetoric and language that's been used by, by the revolutionaries at the time, you can see that members of the religious class are also part of that, especially in the Albanian provinces where the majority of the people that were being convinced of the revolutionary change, change were mainly traditional Muslims. Mm. And this required uh, religious legitimacy. And on many occasions, when the young Turks are talking to the local population, the local population are reluctant to listen to them and only listen to them when uh, an alim um, is explaining the requirements of the revolution, the idea of constitutional change, what the constitution is. And we see this, I mean, on many occasions. So, for example, in Ferozovich, there's a huge meeting in Ferozovich where um, 
just masses and masses of, of people are turning up because they're a bit nervous about what's happening in the region. And I'm not going to give you the long story about how these people get here. But basically what happens is when a committee is sent to uh, talk to them, it's the ulama who are convincing them that it's time for a change, um, that the constitutional is in accordance to Islam, mm-hmm. that we're not going to remove Sultan Abdul Hamid, it's in line with the Sharia. And so they're part of those debates. And when a um, sort of decree, a besser, a besser is like an oath given by the Albanians, mm-hmm. is, is signed and sent, it's sent to the Sheikh al-Islam, Jamal al-Din Afendi, and it's sent to Avonil al-Farid Pasha, who's the Grand Vizier. And the names that are signed first are, you know, the Mufti of Uskop, Pristina. So you can see that they are part of this. And that legitimacy was necessary for this momentum to be able to carry itself and this momentum to be able to delegitimize the so-called pious sultan, right? So Abdul Hamid's reign is seen as his Islamic reign. Well, you know, it's not sufficient to have these soldiers who are sometimes presented as irreligious. Now you have people of the religious order who are part of this. So it changes the dynamics of uh, the revolution in that context. So do you see the involvement of the ulama as being more of a, a making the most of a situation instead of being forcibly uh, thrusted, as, as you said, into the context? I think it's a little unfair to look at it that way. I think they were part of um, Ottoman life, right? So... Um, the grievances they had were just like anyone else. The concerns they had were just like anyone else. So um, they had an opinion of the Hamidian regime. No, I mean, and they're not a homogenous bloc. And we need to understand that. So there were those that supported the Hamidian, Hamidian way of doing things, and there were those that, that didn't support that. But they would have felt what everyone else would have felt. Um, so some of them would have chosen to be part of the the movement because they actively believed in the ideals and others might have got swept along with the current and others were opportunists and um, that's a better way of looking at it in terms of human beings will do different things in different ways mm-hmm. so rather than looking at them as this block um, I think it's better to assume that many of them had the convictions that the Young Turks had um, mm-hmm. and, and they moved for those those reasons I mean I remember Ben Fortner saying we should not be blinded to the range of possibilities that transcended and purely instrumental use of religion. And I believe that. Um, this idea that people at the time are just using religion and the ulama are doing the same. I mean, it's a part of their makeup, their emotions, their structure. Um, and they're concerned about local problems and they're concerned about the state and the way that the politics and the governance is being run. And constitutional theory is something which is um, becoming quite popular across the board in, in the region. Okay, so do you see the ulama having an active participation in the answering of the question that was that was in the minds of uh, most uh, Ottoman intellectuals at the time of Memleket and Hali Neoljak? What is to be of the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, one of the things that concerns me is when we have this idea that the Ottoman ulama is somehow not part of an intellectual class. I mean, they have the same concerns as the intellectuals of the Ottoman Empire. They're part of that that set up, they're part of the, the state structure, they're part of society. I mean, most of the times, they're more apt than, than the intellectuals. They're not sitting in the ivory tower, um, you know, distant from society, actually. So, people in society wouldn't usually come to the ulama and tell them their concerns. Um, we see, interestingly, throughout, from the Gulhane period or the Tanzimat period onwards, of members of the ulama interacting with people of different faith groups as people who represent the state um, as people who represent society um, 
And they had real concerns about what was going to happen with the Ottoman Empire. And the reason we can see this is because the majority of the um, oppositional rhetoric is done by members of the ulama. We see this in their press. They actually make that claim. They say we were part, you know, they say this is our inkalab. This is our revolution. We were all part of that. Um, so they're not hiding from that or trying to shy away from that. They actually want to be seen as these, you know, guardians of faith and guardians of society, um, as people who have been given this responsibility of upholding religion, state, society, and they interacted it in different ways. And what I have always found interesting in terms of the ulama, so they interact with the state, they interact with society, mm-hmm. and they interact with each other. And they have these checks and balances in these ways. So in the Ottoman Empire, if the state was going to do something which was perceived as against religion, then the ulama would work as a function against that. They would work as a function against society to remind them of Islamic ideals. And they would have, they were an eclectic group, so they weren't homogenous. And they would have mechanisms within themselves towards the left and right of arguing amongst themselves to try to keep each other in check. So it's a complicated way of looking at it. Um, Yeah, at times they didn't always get it right. Um, at times they made mistakes, but generally the, the sincerity and sentiment, I think is unfair to question. I think they were just like anyone else. They were part of Ottoman society. You mentioned the term inkalab, revolution. Uh, now, the Young Turks themselves uh, in the Second Constitutional Revolution brought in terms from the French Revolution, including liberté, égalité, fraternité, which they translated as huriet, musavat, and uhuvet. Now, in your opinion, what was the interpretation of these terms, uh, either by the Young Turks or the ulama, whether these correlated or were there any differences in terms of what they saw were the ideals of this revolution? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, it's another good question, actually. So when we look at the, the revolution in particular, initially you don't see the Young Turks actually using the word inkilab. I mean, they, they're using, like, different forms of... Hurriyet, freedom in particular, um, mm. we see something in the works of Ruhi al-Khalidi, who tries to make a distinction in the Arab provinces uh, between inkilab and thawra, uh, revolt and revolution. Um, and he's, you know, I would argue and I assume that he was a member of the Young Turks or CUP at that time. And he, for him, it's very clear to, to put the idea that inkilab is a transformation because revolution for the mass Muslim audience could have been a scary idea, especially for the ulama. I mean, we don't see this sort of revolutionary activity in the Muslim world where we want Islam to go. So what would that have meant to them? But if we're saying that the ulama were part of this revolutionary activity, um, that means that they've definitely understood it as being something else. Um, Revolt sounds harsh, but a transformation sounds better. Um, and so that's what they're working towards, a transformation of the state structure from one uh, particular structure to another, a constitutional one. And this is why I think in English we translate it as constitutional revolution, but then the revolution needs to be qualified is what we mean by that. Now, when we look at the slogans in particular, um, this is interesting. I mean, because so the Young Turks are, are using these slogans to what degree they actually believe in the slogans or to what in degree they've internalized them as some sort of intellectual these intellectual ideals, it's difficult to know. But we can see from the ulama's work in particular, um, so they publish straight after uh, the constitutional change. They start publishing in pamphlets and newspapers of the need to qualify these terms, right? Now, I'm just going to give you an example. So hurriyet, it has an internal indigenous meaning. 
it has a meaning that predated the idea of being translated from freedom to hurriyat. So it means that society had an understanding of what this meant. Um, it also has a sort of Islamic undertone in medieval political thought um, of freedom. What does freedom mean in, in that context? And so all human beings are free. In, in, but the freedom to do whatever you want, not really. So what you see now is the ulama are using these terms to qualify them for the mass uh, public out there and telling them, okay, we have freedom in the Ottoman Empire and we're calling for freedom, but it has to be under these terms. So you can't just do what you want. Um, we have equality, but um, you know, I, I remember reading from Musa Kazim, who later becomes Sheikh al-Islam, of making a distinction in society. So men are different from women. And Muslims are different from non-Muslims, and um, the educated are, are are different from the uneducated. But we have equality in the eyes of the law, and you can see this is something that starts off in the Gulhane. We see these concepts uh, in the, the Majelle process about providing equality to citizens or subjects in the in the eyes of the law. So you can see that they are now reclaiming these terms. They're moving away because the ulama, in particular, from what I saw, were quite nervous about. The, the concept or the history behind the French Revolution I mean the French Revolution is not something that they aspired for Because one of the reasons is they had a bad experience with Napoleon In terms of the Ottoman Empire They, they, were, they were well aware of what Napoleon was trying to achieve Especially in Egypt um, So that level of colonialism that came along with the French Revolution Is something that they were not too keen on mm. So the idea that they were then going to go around saying these words And actually you don't see that in their work You actually do see the uh, Ottoman or Turkish or Arabic words of Hurriyet Hurriya, Musavid, Musawa, Uhuvid, Uhuwa as part of their language and then the need to qualify that. And they include their own uh, their own language, words like Nizam, Adalet, Meshverit, yeah. even Inkilap itself. Yeah, that's right. It has a fantastic point. So they start to add words like Adalet, right? Um, and this is an interesting point. So you start to see justice as a fundamental principle. Nizam is an interesting word. Why? Because it resonates with sort of two audiences. One is the military. You need system and structure in the military. Um, but Nizam is also the Nizamiya courts, right? So there, there is this, this, this knowing of the word Nizam and system and structure and what type of system and structure that they are to have. Um, but Adalet is, is the one and Shura, Meshveret is the two that are being now pushed about by the ulama in particular. And, and these are heavily restricted within Islamic ideals, within religious ideals, that justice uh, supersedes uh, freedom, equality uh, in this context uh, where freedom, inequality and brotherhood need to be protected. And the only way they can be protected is under the concept of justice. And justice is something that the Sultan must provide to his citizens. And justice comes from religion or from Islam and from, this, from, from Allah, from the Sharia, from the state. And this is who decides what justice is. And so it becomes the driving factor that those ideals cannot be protected if they didn't have justice. And this now starts to go back. So we see ideals of justice within medieval Islamic political thought. We see the concept of the circle of justice within the Ottoman uh, Empire. So there's the culture of justice is heavily ingrained within Ottoman society and they appeal to that. So we have to assume that society had some sort of interaction with this word. It's really interesting that you mentioned that uh, the qualify these terms in the pamphlets, this guide to Hurriyet, Musawat, Uhuvet, I suppose. Do you see this as part of an appropriation that's separate from the state institutions or do you see it 
as the ulama playing a role that's within and that's ingrained within the Ottoman institutions, the Ottoman Empire itself. So it's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, so I always argue the case that is the state mufti the state's mufti, right? And this idea that um, are they just being manipulated and used by the state? And what you look at is the state mufti in particular, and we could argue maybe even now, but more so in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, they have a particular role in terms of, you know, the functions that the state requires from them. But they also have a belief that they could regulate the state too. And so they, they go hand in hand, right? They're part of this structure. So on some hands, they might probably believe in, in the ideals of what the state's trying to do. It, it, it wouldn't surprise me if they did believe that. Um, but then also not allowing the sort of mechanisms that are arising at the time to just go in a direction they do not want, right? So to some degree, um, they might be attempting to curtail and clip the wings of this sort of revolutionary zeal that is um, becoming constructed to a certain degree after the revolution. And you look, you, it has to be remembered. So the revolution is, the success of the constitutional changes is made on July 24th and it takes two, three days for these celebrations to take place in Istanbul. And that's because people are nervous about seeing the military in Istanbul. Um, and there's an agitation of what's happening. But once the, the sort of celebrations are constructed um, and getting people to come out, I mean, now you've, you've put out a situation of just mass emotion and people are out there. And like in Jerusalem, for example, they thought freedom meant we don't have to pay taxes, right? So people didn't know what this meant, what this freedom meant. And so out they were going. And, and then it required the ulama um, to come back in as people who are legitimate in society to a certain degree to slow it down. Um, and what's interesting here is, so in the beginning, the CUP are like a clandestine organization. They're still not visible to the rest of the world, Ottoman world, shall I say. Um, so nobody quite knows who they are, but they know who the ulama are. They know who these people are. They can interact with that. So it's easier for the ulama to become visible and they come out into the open space. And that's a, you know, once Pandora's box is open for them, they're out they are, you know, in the public space and now interacting with the different types of uh, groups and peoples and emotions that are out there. And also probably, um, you know, as emotional as anyone else. I mean, it's a charged environment and there's no way of saying that they want not feeling that emotion themselves and not feeling that sincerity um, of wanting to make the change. I mean, that's very evident for me when I see the work that they they were just like anyone else. So thinking back at the Hatta Sherif of Gülhane of 1839, uh, a, a proclamation that was instrumental for the Second Constitutional Revolution, it was popularly known as the Gevura Gevur Danmejik proclamation, the foreigner shall no longer be called the foreigner proclamation. Now my question is, who would have said this? Who would have popularized it in such a term and who was it uh, aimed at i mean could we think about the ulama and see what how they participate in this question were were they the ones who were who were saying gavra gavrdan magic or were they the ones being uh, told that the, a foreigner shall no longer be known as a foreigner yeah i mean the gulhane is interesting for me and the main reason why it's interesting is because first off it starts off as like this document which is creating a relationship between the ruler and the ruled right and so now uh, people are starting to take attention of the fact that um, what does that mean? Um, and is it, I mean, so Butros Abumane is pointing to the fact that some of these ideals which are strongly Islamic 
are taken from medieval political Islamic thought and that to assume that this is Western inspired um, is a mistake. But having said that, there, there was a trend within secondary literature of trying to point towards the idea that this is Western inspired and that the Muslims were alarmed by this and shocked by this and they hated it. But what I would argue is that the opinions were eclectic. Um, they varied. So there were members of the ulama who were part of the construction of the Gulhani, right? Um, we know that because of the, the nature of of the Gulhane being like within Islamic political thought of the time. So we can safely say that the ulama are part of this. So are they being warned by this? Well, I would say it's probably there were certain elements within Ottoman society, conservative elements within Ottoman society, who were not satisfied with the type of equality that was being talked about. Um, and this becomes a problem throughout that period about what does equality mean? And, and what do we mean by this absolute equality? And we even see attempts like after the Islaf Harman in 57, um, a sort of revolt in, in Istanbul by conservative members of the ulama to apply pressure on the sultan and the sublime port in particular um, about, you know, it's going too much in another direction. Um, and yeah, sometimes we shouldn't forget uh, the voices of the conservative elements within Ottoman society. There were a lot of conservative elements within Ottoman society, a lot of nomadic elements within Ottoman society that would have interpreted um, ideas in that way. And that's the wonderful thing about ideas, I guess, which is uh, there's no single interpretation of that. Um, but we do see a debate within the religious class. Um, and the fact that there is a continual need to qualify um, is an indication then that this debate is continues to take place. Sometimes it was violent, but most of the time it's intellectual. Um, and we see, so for example, in the Majelle, right, the idea of equality for all uh, uh, citizens in, in, that, in that context, in the sense that um, non-Muslims could now be uh, presented as witnesses um, on equal footing to Muslims. Um, we see in the Gulhane the idea of equality. We see in the Constitution the idea of equality. Uh, and then we see this call in the Young Turk Revolution, the idea of equality. Um, equality here, from the works of the ulama that I am looking at, is more of an equality in the eyes of the law. It's very possible that in Ottoman society they had this Orwellian concept of all animals are equal except some animals are more equal than others. And I'm not going to go around trying to dispute that. I don't know. But what I'm trying to guess, I guess, point to is that there was a feeling that there are non-Muslims in the empire and um, in terms of the eyes of the law and opportunity that they are just like any other citizen or subject in the empire. Um, and the ulama are driving factors behind that. And 1908 is um, important because you see the ulama reaching out publicly to try to consolidate that. So not only are we now seeing the slogans, we're now seeing the ulama reaching out to non-Muslim subjects of the empire. Um, and citizens, and I, I use this word subjects and citizens interchangeably because this is a moment where subject, subjects are becoming citizens and whatnot. So forgive me for doing that. But um, you see them appealing to the non-Muslims. And it's a, it's a debate that takes place within the Muslim society at the time. I suppose that debate also includes the uh, French revolutionary idea of laicity, of secularism, does it not? Now, I don't see anything in the, in the works of the ulama that sort of uh, try to address this point. I mean, there is a, a, a fear among certain elements. I mean, we see this in the works of Ahmed Bidat's work in terms of when he's talking about constitutionalism. And there's a group of Muslims 
who just think the idea of a constitution is foreign, alien, we don't want it. And then other people assuming that it's just something that could be dangerous for the Ottoman Empire, right? Um, and so there are the accusations by certain elements within the Ottoman uh, intelligentsia that are afraid that certain movements are being made that can resemble some sort of like secularism or whatnot. But secularism in itself is a loaded term in the sense that the Muslim experience or the Ottoman experience is very different than the European experience. And sometimes I feel that it's used too simplistically in trying to explain the Ottoman uh, experience of what's happening. And here I turn to the works of Talal Asad and we see that actually it's far more complicated than that. Um, but it is a tool to bash. Uh, it is a tool used by certain elements who are afraid. It is a tool to scaremonger. But if we were to take those rhetorical um, complaints as a reflection on the actual reality, I think they're harder to substantiate. Okay, changing gear very slightly, uh, after the 1908 uh, revolution, uh, we see an increased journalistic activity. A number of newspapers and journals in urban centres, uh, you mentioned Istanbul, increases. You've looked at the 1908 Siratul Mustakim, the Bayan ul Haq, uh, I think both published in Istanbul, and the Al Manaj uh, in Cairo. Yeah, the newspapers are interesting, right? So one of the things is, is that we see newspaper activity um, in the Hamidian period. And we have to be fair to the Hamidian period. I'm not here to, to sort of bash Sultan Abdul Hamid. I mean, the idea is, is that there is um, newspaper activity and there is ulama newspaper activity in the Hamidian period. But um, dissent is what is uh, restricted by the state. Um, but in 1908, um, for me, we have these three intriguing uh, publications. Now, Al-Manar, actually, was published before 1908. So it starts um, in the Hamidian period and Rashid Rida is uh, doing his activity in Egypt. And, you know, from Egypt, he's critiquing the Hamidian regime and the Ottoman Empire, but he's uh, very cleverly not critiquing the, you know, Egyptian government um, in that context. And so you sort of have to put even his works into a particular level of context in terms of the way he was speaking in regards to his critique towards the Ottoman Empire. But why I used Al-Manar with Bayan al-Haq and Sirat al-Mustakim, is they were the visible newspapers during, straight after the revolution of ulama activity, right? So Sirat al-Mustakim is an umbrella um, journal in which you have members of the ulama and Muslim intellectuals like uh, Mehmed Akif, who actually I would consider an alim as well, to be honest, but a young guy, um, who, who are writing to the mass Muslim audience about the revolution, but about a host of other, other things like religion, geography, history, and, and whatnot. And that's the first publication you see uh, in Istanbul, right, from the ulama. And what's interesting is the members of the ulama that are in that newspaper, like uh, Manasar Ismail Haki and, uh, you know, Musa Kazim, they're very old, they're senior members of the ulama who actually afterwards go in the House of Senate, the Majlis Ayan. They have some sort of activity and connection with people like Namik Kamal before. So... They are actually a group of people that go through three different stages. Tanzimat, Hamidian period, Young Turk revolutions. And they are the ones who are now appealing to the Muslim masses in the journals about uh, the merits of the constitution. We have a second newspaper or journal, Bayan al-Haq, um, which is mainly um, circling around young members of the ulama in the Fatih area, right? So uh, Mustafa Sabri, Musa, and uh, Elman al-Hamdi Yazar, and people like that, right? And they, this journal is a purely ulama-based journal. Every member is an alim. And um, 
they put their ideas out there. So you, we could argue it's a generational difference, or we could argue it's an ideological difference. I mean, I f- think it's unfair to pit these two newspapers against each other, just because when we look at the readership, uh, people were buying both newspapers at the same time. Do we know that they were popular? Yes, they were popular, because we know that Sirat al in the first couple of weeks was sold out. And we can also tell by this type of letters that were coming in and the amount of letters that were coming in to the writers and editors of the newspapers, even outside the empire, right? And asking these members of the ulama questions. Um, and we know that people were reading them side by side. I always found it interesting to know how they physically interacted with them. So did people do abtes wudu and then, you know, take this newspaper that had Arabic words in it and, and place them in interesting places. And the reason why I say that is because a friend of mine, his grandfather, Sorry, great grandfather still has. They found these newspapers alongside religious, you know, books and whatnot, and perfectly preserved side by side. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how people interacted with it. But it, they were definitely used as a mouthpiece too. They were used as a mouthpiece to tell Muslims about ulama activity in the mosques, uh, Ayah Sophia, for example, uh, circles, talks, uh, invitations. Um, so it's interesting. So this journalistic activity, so you can see it's a switch from ilmir ideas to more polemical ideas or political polemical ideas. Um, so the alim has become a journalist. Now, they were not outright journalists as what you'd see today. Like, you know, such and such happened in Fatih. There was a fire. They weren't doing that. They were talking about ideas. Apart from Rashid Rida, who's unique. I mean, he actually is a one-man project, an editor, a writer, a journalist. And he wants to uh, write about a host of things, and he does that. But generally, you start to see a connectivity between these newspapers, a network taking place, uh, an interaction. And you do see writers from Bayan al-Haq writing in Sirat al-Mustaqim. And you do see articles of Sirat al-Mustaqim sometimes appearing in Bayan al-Haq. And you definitely see in Sirat al-Mustaqim, for example, works of Muhammad Abdul, Rashid Rida, uh, writers from around the world. Um, being translated into Ottoman Turkish into Sirat al-Mustaqim. So you see this connectivity that's happening at the time. So in terms of the day-to-day, the ulama would have contact, uh, obviously, in the mosques. We've talked about the newspapers, the pamphlets, and the literature that they produce. But where else would the ulama and the alims uh, have contact? Uh, How how else would they participate in the day-to-day discussions? Right. Now, this is interesting. So the ulama have always been visible to uh, the mass Muslim population and even non-Muslim population. Why? Because they wear an attire, right? So... Um, they have a, a, a particular uniform which we can uh, sort of relate to. So people would go to them and find them in spaces like the mosques and people would go to their houses. But in particular in regards to the revolution, in terms of their increased sort of like political visibility, what's interesting after the revolution is when the demonstrations are taking place, when the celebrations are taking place, the ulama are out and they can visibly be seen in terms of their garb and their uniforms, Right. But not only that, Bosnia is annexed, and so there's a spate of protests around the Ottoman Empire. And once again, the ulama are the driving factors behind, uh, or one of the driving factors behind these these protests. So they become visible in that, and you can see them there. Um, We see the ulama in the elections. So when the parliamentary elections are taking place, once again, they become visible. Why? Because they become parliamentarians. So they're going out to be elected. Um, And then we see them visibly in the parliament. So we have pictures of them in the parliament as parliamentarians. So we can see that this increased visibility and this transformation, which they've 
um, aptly been able to do. So the whole idea that the ulama were unable to modernize, this goes against that because they're journalists, they're parliamentarians, they're people who are protesting, they're people who are boycotting, and they're actually at the front, not at the back. Um, in regards to uh, the celebrations, I've always found it interesting um, in the way that they've interacted with these two different spaces. So, uh, for example, we know activities of key state ulama who are going into places like churches and standing side by side by priests and rabbis and hugging them and embracing them as a way of showing solidarity, right? And in a strange way, that's a reflection of sort of state non-Muslim relations where the alim has become this embodiment of the state and the state religion. And if he were not to be in those celebrations, how would Muslims and the state be perceived? Probably in a very negative light. So the fact that they were there is interesting. I mean, look, it also needs to be understood that Christians and Jews are not the only non-religious, non-Muslim sort of uh, citizen subjects in the empire So in Iraq for example You have Shia Muslims And equality meant something totally different to them So there needed to be you know, this unification of Shias and Sunnis And standing side by side In regards to uh, the revolutionary change But in the mosque there's a different environment In the mosque on their own turf uh, In their own domain To their own people um, They're interacting in a different way um, in, in that space it's just purely Muslim and they're encouraging them and educating them and teaching them about the merits of the constitution and the revolution. So you can see how they're interacting with these two spaces. Uh, on the one hand, they are entering non-Muslim space, but on the other hand, they have also have their own space. Um, and so naturally, they are not only uh, social actors or religious actors, they become political actors or they've always been political actors. If we're going to say that Deen and Devlet, are, you know, we use them synonymously, interchangeably, then the ulama become a reflection on that in some way. And 1908 is an apt sort of way of seeing that rather than relegating them. We actually see an increased uh, indication of that. So if we're to take the Dinu Devlet idea, the idea of religion and state, the mosque is clearly the religious space. So what would be the equivalent of the political Devlet or state space? Okay, so this is interesting. I mean, so what I'll do is I'll first answer the question in in that way, and then I'll break it down further, right? So the public space or the civic space or the state space, shall I say, is the Maidan, right? Where the public declarations are made to all citizens or all subjects of the empire. And so that's where the state, like the Gulhane, for example, a park, right? You go out into a, a big area, a big space, and you make these declarations and people come and they listen. Um, the mosque, however, um, is interesting because actually it is both. Um, it's religious and political, but it's different than the civic space of the state outside. The mosque is the Muslim space in that context, if you know what I mean. So outside, you're talking to all subjects or citizens of the empire. But in the mosque, the function or the political function is still taking place. For example, members of the CUP would come into the mosque on a Friday, stand shoulder to shoulder with the alim and say, endorse me, you know. And we can see this in, in, for example, in Damascus when Fuad Pasha is, you know, comes to the mosque on a Friday and then they carry him on his shoulders on a Friday and take him out onto the streets and the celebrations begin. So once again, in this idea that the mosque being a place purely for worship is a construction of the nation state idea. But in the Ottoman Empire, it's far more complicated than that. But what it is, is it's a Muslim space. Um, I don't know to what degree non-Muslim activity took place in the mosque. 
but we know that the Maidan issues are an open space for everybody. So you can see the, the way that the state interacts with these two spaces. Okay, so the 1905 Russian Revolution and then the Iranian Revolutions, you know, you've mentioned that there, uh, within the narratives, have always been a mentioning of the role of the ulama. And perhaps that's uh, less the case in the 1908 uh, Constitutional Revolution. We, we've talked about uh, their role. We've talked about uh, the way that they've influenced the discussion. So where do you see uh, the participation of the ulama and its study of uh, developing, how, how do you see it uh, uh, being approached in terms of the historiography? Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see, I mean, like, so Amit Bain has has produced some work in regards to this um, and kicked on from that. And now, I mean, I noticed definitely when I was in Turkey that there's an attempt to k- kick on from the um, ulama narratives of trying to look at them differently, as see them as active participants of the sort of changes that were taking place and the transformations that were taking place in the Ottoman Empire. What I would like to see is uh, just ulama studies across the board, actually. Um, we do see scholarship on members of the ulama in parts of Syria uh, and Palestine, but a lot of the times um, they're very local. And what I see in terms of the Young Turk Revolution is that there is an investment across the empire. Um, so when the revolution takes place initially, there's members of the ulama in the Balkan provinces. Uh, when we come to Istanbul, there's members of the ulama in the center. But then we see works of the ulama after 1908 in Arabic, in Palestine, in Syria, in Iraq, in Konya. So there is a general investment of uh, the ulama across the empire. And what it indicates to me is is a way of looking at the, the idea of empire, the idea of how people were invested in change, in ideas, in emotion, in religion, um, in state, and how we can start to marry these ideas together to see, look at the empire as a whole and see how these changes actually impacted everyone. And the ulama are a good reflection on that because, like, as I said, they interacted with society, but they also interacted with state. They were sort of like this bridge between the two. And if we can start to see them differently, we can now start to see uh, the Ottoman Empire in a different way. Um, so we can see that the ulama were interacting with non-Muslims. We can start to see the ulama interacting in their own spaces. We can see them as parliamentarians, journalists, and people who were um, able to change and adapt just like the Ottoman Empire was doing. And so in, 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 in some ways, for me, I'd like to see them as a reflection of the Ottoman Empire rather than as uh, something that was irrelevant to the Ottoman Empire. Um, so that's where I'd like to see the studies go next. And on that point, Jakub, thank you very much for taking part and for the uh, stimulating discussion. Uh, yeah, no, thanks a lot, Thailand. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find a relevant bibliography on the topics we've discussed today. You'll also be able to find our other podcast and all things Ottoman. Do also take the time to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm Thailand Gingur. Thanks for listening. <laughs>